I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and through him I will have new life. How simple the statement of belief. Jesus is the Messiah, the one who fulfills the promises found in Hebrew scriptures, the one who makes right our world. Jesus is the Son of God, the one who has the power and the heart of God. And through these beliefs in Jesus, I will have new life. The Gospel of John is unapologetic about the belief in the truth that it professes. And that is disturbing to many of us whose first impulse is to not run over someone else's heart, mind, or soul. We worry that we're somehow going to appear like those earnest football fans that we see who are watching the game and have John 3.16 painted across their chests. And then there's the negative references to the Jews found in the gospel. I listened to a Jewish rabbi recently and he was angrily critiquing the gospel because of its anti-Jewish content. I understand the difficulties of the gospel. And to preach out of it is to preach that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. To do otherwise is to distort the voice of John. The gospel of John means for all of us to fall in love with Jesus. It may be that today you cannot say with John, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and through him I have new life. And it may be that those are never your words. But don't let it stop you from entering into the gospel, especially if today your desire is to experience the love of God more completely. For John makes clear that in Jesus, God's love is fully known. The Gospel of John is an invitation into love. It is the only Gospel that begins, has as its first miracle, Jesus turning water into wine at the wedding of Cana. And even in our reading, at the end of the Gospel, the Gospel writer does not issue a command saying, believe. Instead, all that is written in the gospel about what Jesus has done, about what Jesus continues to do, is so that you may come to believe. Our reading begins with the disciples in the room together having locked the doors for fear of the Jews. Now that phrase, the Jews, is loaded with the conflict of the time and place in which the scripture was written. You see, the synagogues at first, they were home for all Jews, even those who followed Christ. But when the Gospel of John is written, a generation after the first disciples, the grandchildren just don't get along. And those who follow Christ, well, they're not welcome at the family celebrations anymore. And it's out of that hostility that the Jews become the Gospel of John's enemy to the new faith. 
They aren't the only enemy that you'll find in the New Testament. The Roman Empire is another one. You'll find them in the Revelation. They're envisioned and attacked in the book of Revelation. So understand this. The phrase, the for fear of the Jews, it sets John's gospel firmly into a historical time and place in which Christianity had emerged out of, or more accurately, had been kicked out of the synagogue. Okay, the disciples, they who literally walked with Jesus, are together in a room behind a locked door, I imagine, though, that they must have been incredibly sad. They had just seen their teacher, their friend, the one for whom they left behind the fishing nets, the one for whom they left behind their family. They had just seen him die on the cross. And yet, Scripture doesn't say it is fear that locked the door or it's sadness that locked the door. No, it's fear. Fear is what has locked the door. The enemy to belief is fear. The disciples were locked in the room because they were afraid. They were afraid that what killed Jesus could be after them. They were afraid of the crowd who chose Barabbas to live while Jesus was sent to the cross those who didn't want their firm foundation to shift, those who would not believe that God had acted, had sent a son into their world, into their time. But what was their firm foundation except a set of laws which kept the temple standing, a set of laws skewed so they could keep the us and them apart? What was the crowd except the puppet of the political elite? And what was the unbelief except the expression of the feeling that God is just too big to care about us? Oh yes, God can make the mountain and God can make the sky, but care about us? Surely God doesn't have time to enter into our world or enter into our lives. Might religious divisions, might politics of church, might that feeling that God doesn't have the time to care, might these still stand in our way of opening the door to belief? Well, praise God, the resurrected Jesus is not stopped by locked doors. He enters right into their hiding place. He looks straight into the disciples' fears. He stands in the midst of them and he says, Peace be with you. And then, so they might know he is who they think he is, he shows them his hands and his side. And the disciples who saw their Lord rejoiced. Now that would have been a good enough ending. The resurrected Jesus, unstopped by human fears, brings peace to all those who love him. Isn't this enough reason to rejoice? But it's not for the Gospel of John. 
It is not enough to be in, have peace inside the room you first entered because of fear. It is not enough to remain among a small group of friends. It's not enough. Behind locked doors, a room becomes awfully small. Behind locked doors, the faces remain the same. They just become a little more wrinkled. And the ceiling, not the sky, becomes the limit. And there's nowhere to go. Jesus' disciples are not meant to stay in the room where they were first found by him. But to leave the hiding place, to go out, that means facing religious division. To go out means to engage the politics of our culture. To go out means we will at times feel alone and even apart from God. And so the resurrected Jesus has a second blessing to give, a second giving of peace. Jesus says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And yes, you should be afraid. But then the gospel narrates this. When he had said these words, he breathed on them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus gives them a mission. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Wow. Wow. Jesus has just given his disciples power over sin. And if we understand sin as missing the mark, then it is the Holy Spirit disciples mission to help the community, to help the nation, and even to help the church straighten their aim. The Holy Spirit sends the disciples outward into the aimless masses to make straight a path to God. What a grand mission. And now this would be a good place to end, but we have a few more minutes as the children return to us. But this is good. This all sounds so neat and tidy, but we don't all believe in the same way, do we? And so now John focuses in on a disciple named Thomas, the one who gave birth to the phrase doubting Thomas, the one Mary just spoke of when she was speaking to the children. See, Thomas was away when Jesus went through that locked door. Maybe he was out shopping for food. Maybe he was the only one that had found work. Or maybe there was a rendezvous with somebody who had a beautiful smile. Scripture does not say where he was. But when Thomas returns, the exuberant disciples announce, we have seen the Lord. We have seen the Lord. But Thomas needs more proof than a second-hand account. He says, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put the finger in the mark of his nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, Jesus returns. A week later, 
Part of Thomas's journey then was to feel apart from the glorious experience everyone else had had. I know that feeling. I remember meeting up with a friend of mine in seminary who, when I asked her how she was, she said, I just spent an amazing weekend with the Lord. Wow, that's great, I mumbled as I thought about how I had just spent the weekend working two jobs and studying for exams. When you're hard at work, it is easy to identify with Thomas's doubt. But the resurrected Jesus doesn't leave him alone. He returns to the closed room. And he begins as he did the first time, saying, Peace be with you. And then, wasting no time, he says, "Put Thomas, put your hand here in my side. Touch my side, touch my hands. Do not doubt, Thomas, but believe. After a week of silence, after a week of watching the other disciples celebrate while he was left to wonder, Jesus' invitation to do the very thing he needs to do in order to believe leads to Thomas's exclamation, my Lord and my God. Jesus comes to Thomas in the very way he needs in order to believe. There's neither threat nor chastisement, only the embodiment of God's heart only an invitation to believe. My Lord and my God. Now you would think that would be the ending. But again, the closed room is too small. Jesus isn't meant only to speak to the disciples, only to that small group of men who lived at a certain time and a certain place. Jesus did not do all he did so that only a few might believe. In John chapter 17, Jesus, who is about to be arrested in the garden, prays to God. He prays to his Father that he would protect his followers, that not one may be lost, that they might have his joy made complete in them. And when he's done with his requests, he prays, I ask not only on behalf of these, not only on behalf of these people who are here that I've come to know, but also on behalf of those who will believe, who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one. Every word in John is written not only for the people of that time, but for those who would come after, written for you and written for me. Have you believed because you have seen me? Jesus asks. Well, no. I haven't seen you. I haven't seen you, not like Thomas, not like the disciples. Still, Can you believe that Jesus cares that much for you that he lived out the events in the Holy Week? Can you believe that he is still reaching out for you? 
And can you believe that Jesus cares that much for those you pass by each and every day? That he is reaching out to them through you, through the Holy Spirit inspired you. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and through him we have new life. It is like most creeds, a good one to ponder. These words articulate faith. They lead you down a good path. And they summarize the truth the gospel wishes to tell. But hear this, you do not have to argue yourself into belief. Live it. If Jesus is the Messiah, then he is the one God intends to show you the way. And if Jesus is the Son of God, then he has the power and the heart of God. He is the one who wants to lead you into new life. So let him start with the end. Assume Jesus will lead you into new life and see if he has that power. See if he has God's heart. See if he shows you the way. So look here on the screen once again. For here Jesus is looking right out of the Gospel of John, right into the eyes of all of you who read it. And he says, blessed are you who have not seen, but who have come to believe. Amen and amen.